This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. Today I've been joined once again by Dr. Alexi Bouvier, a general paediatric consultant at Great Ormond Street. And he's talking to me about cow's milk protein allergy, including its presentation, clinical assessment and management. This corresponds to the infection, immunology and allergy section of the RCPCH curriculum. Welcome back to the show, Alexi. Thank you again for coming on today to talk to me about CMPA or cow's milk protein allergy. You're welcome. The pleasure is always. To start with, what would you like people to get out of this podcast? So I would like people to get out of this podcast the how to diagnose cow's milk protein allergy and then how to manage it. We'll also talk a little bit about investigation, but mainly the diagnosis and initial management of cow's milk protein allergy. So starting at the beginning with a definition, what is cow's milk protein allergy and what causes it? So no bonus points for figuring out, but it is cow's milk protein. And in that it is an allergy. So it is an immune mediated response, which for CMPA can be either IgE or non-IgE mediated. And we'll discuss a little bit more about the differences further on. So it's quite common enough for us to see in GP or in A&E or in clinic even with two to three percent of infants having it by around the age of one to two years old, though most of them will present by the age of six to 12 months. Having said that, most of them tend to resolve. Two thirds of those with CMPA will have grown out of it by preschool age, especially those that are non-IgE mediated. And we see it most in the formula-fed patients mainly because of the concentration of cow's milk protein that they have compared to what comes through into a mother's breast milk. As it is an allergy, it's part of the atopy family, and it's definitely associated with children who have other atopies or might then develop other atopies in the future, as well as those with a family history of atopy, so food allergies, eczema, asthma, that kind of thing. And what you see is different depending on whether you have the IgE or the non-IgE mediated arm. So with the IgE arm, that is more of a classical allergy. It's histamines, it's rapid, it comes on within 20 to 30 minutes or up to two hours from ingestion, and it looks like an allergy and can even develop up to and including anaphylaxis. You can also get just skin manifestations, so an urticarial rash, for example, or you might have a upset stomach, vomiting, diarrhea in the GI perspective, or you might have difficulty breathing, stridor in the respiratory perspective, like you might have in anaphylaxis for any other allergic trigger. However, given so many of these patients are infants, sometimes they can present 
differently, even in their almost anaphylactic endpoint. And so babies who become very pale, babies that become very floppy, infants or babies that become quite unresponsive are known presentations of IgE-mediated cow's milk protein allergy. And to contrast that with the non-IgE-mediated arm, where you can often have a slower onset of symptoms and a more non-specific onset of symptoms. So whereas with the IgEs, you're getting your more classical allergic signs and symptoms, in non-IgE, you might have things such as abdominal pain or food refusal, food aversion, because essentially the child knows that this isn't going to be a pleasant experience and is starting to push it away and try and refuse it. You might have a little bit of blood in the stool or mucus even from where the gut's not able to absorb it properly and is reacting against it. You can also have faltering growth in the severer ones because it's really affecting their, their tolerance and their absorption to such an effect that they're not able to take in the calories and energy needed to grow and develop. Some babies also get severe eczema. So it's something to consider when babies present with severe eczema beyond what you might expect in that age group. In the slightly milder non-IgE brackets, again, non-specific signs and symptoms, abdominal pain, colic, crying, babies do that, infants do that to an extent, reflux, some loose or, or frequent bowel motions, or conversely, constipation. Again, all these non-specific signs and symptoms that so many babies present with, most of whom are absolutely fine, and most of whom will improve without any changes or any treatment being done. You can also get a, a catarrhal picture, so blocked nose, runny nose, that kind of thing, like you might expect in a hay fever patient, for example. And if it is non-IG, you often get multiple symptoms at once, especially in the GI arm. So you might get pain, and blood and constipation and some refluxy colicky vomiting type symptoms or a combination of those. But it's it can be a tricky one because those are also non-specific and also they don't always come on as or they don't come on as quickly. So non-IGE has a delayed onset of anywhere up to 48 hours to a week from ingestion. So sometimes it can be difficult to pin down a time frame to help you get that diagnosis. So talking a bit more about the diagnosis, it sounds like a lot of the features of CMPA are quite non-specific, particularly for non-IGE mediated CMPA. How do you go about getting a kind of formal diagnosis? So to get a formal diagnosis, you work slightly differently whether you think it's IgE or non-IgE. So mainly across both of them, it is a clinical diagnosis. And some of the ways that you can work to decide whether it's more likely to be cow's milk protein or just reflux or just constipation idiopathically is, again, the non-IGEs will often have multiple symptoms that you might not expect if it was just reflux or just constipation. And the IgE ones will often have quite rapid onset. So if a child takes a bottle and then within an hour or even faster has vomiting, has a bit of a skin eczema, urticarial rash type flare up, for example. 
And then the diagnosis is seconded by excluding the supposed trigger. So if you think that cow's milk protein is the problem, then you remove cow's milk protein from the equation for four to six weeks and hope to see improvement or resolution of symptoms. If you do, technically you have to then reintroduce it to get that final confirmation because it might just have been that a non-cow's milk protein problem was happening and was resolving itself separate to you taking out the cow's milk at the same time, almost like there were two different things happening to this child. And if you restart the cow's milk and symptoms don't restart, then it's not the cow's milk that's causing the problem. Whereas if you put back in formula into the diet, or if you allow mums to start drinking milk again and taking in dairy into their diet in breastfed babies and their symptoms restart, then you've got a supposed problem that you've removed with improvement and then recurrence on reintroduction. And that's enough to get you a diagnosis of cow's milk protein allergy. But if you think that it is an IgE mediated, especially the severe ones, or the really bad eczema's resistant to treatment, for example, you can also do specific IgE tests or skin prick testing, although you should be referring through from A&E to pediatric clinic or even to pediatric allergy clinic to be able to run and to understand those for you. And it's important to know that you can't and shouldn't use this as screening tests because it can be difficult or sometimes impossible to differentiate between sensitization versus true allergy. So again, this is, I think it's cow's milk protein and I'm going to send them to the allergist to confirm it, not we're just going to send loads of IgEs or do skin pricks for everything because this child's got a bit of vomiting and a bit of a rash. You need to try and be a little bit more specific in your referral and a little bit more specific in your diagnosis or at least narrowing down that differential diagnosis. So in general, diagnostic tests should be limited to children where you're considering IgE-mediated allergy as opposed to non-IgE-mediated allergy. Is that right? Yes, the referrals to pediatric allergy would be for the anaphylactic cases, the severe delayed reactions, or those that you also think have multiple food allergies, severe eczema, resistant to treatment, or those where it's just a really unclear history and you don't quite know what the trigger might be, or there's no response to elimination, but we still feel that there's a possible allergic element to it. And any child that you think has cow's milk protein allergy should be discussed and ideally referred to dietitians. And that's because if you're switching to a different formula, when it gets time to wean, we have to go through the dietitian arm. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And also for mothers who are breastfeeding and you're asking them to cut out dairy from their diet, you need to consider calcium and vitamin D supplements for them. And sometimes even you need to consider calcium supplements for the child or infant too. And so part of your clinical diagnosis is taking a focused allergy history. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what questions you'd specifically be asking for an allergy history? Yeah, of course. So you want to know how old they were when this started, so age of onset, and what the suspected triggers are, what the symptoms are. So if a parent comes to you and regardless of what they eat, they're having symptoms, that's not very specific or only when they have milk or only when they have this type of food 
do they have this reaction? That's a lot more specific. And then what the symptoms are. So when they have milk or when they have this food, they get tummy pain, vomiting, constipation, rashes, breathing problems, swelling of the tongue, swelling of the lips, getting a very clear picture in your mind of what's happening, of where it's happening. Is this just something that happens at school versus at home? Is this something that happens at grandparents but not at parents which might suggest for example something about what's in the house or even how things are being cooked what kind of ingredients are being used and are these symptoms and signs reproducible is it every time they have this food or every time they have this bottle of formula they get it or only sometimes the more predictable the reaction the more reproducible the more indiscriminate across settings this reaction is, the more likely it is to be a true allergy to that. And hopefully you can narrow down the list of potential offending triggers. You'd then ask, and often parents have tried different formulas, for example, what have they tried treating wise? What have they tried diet alteration wise? If a problem's constipation, have they tried medicines for that? If a problem's vomiting, have they been on reflux medicines and found that it's not helped at all? If they thought the problem was colic, have they tried something for that? Have they tried switching formulas due to feeling it was about taste? Although at that age, in, in, especially in the early baby and infancy period, the difference between SMA, cow and gate, et cetera, from a gut perspective, isn't really there. They probably do taste a little bit different, but they're both cow's milk protein. And similarly, some parents go down comfort milk routes which is something that you can buy over the counter. And they are often used for potential reflux cases, sometimes things like stay down milks you might hear of used as well if they think it's reflux. But again, those are still cow's milk protein containing formulas. So that's not going to be any different if it's an allergy to your standard SMA cow and gate, for example. Then you ask about the rest of the ATP family. Do they have eczema? Do they have allergies to medicines? Do they have allergies to animals? Do they have any other suspected or confirmed food allergies? Is there a family history of ATP and allergy of asthma and such like that? And again, that the more atopic the child, the more atopic the family, the more likely it is that there is an ATP element and an allergy element in your patient that you've got in front of you. Not definite, but we know that ATP runs in families in that way. If you've got one, you're more likely to have another. And if all your family have got ATP, you're more likely to have ATP than if none of your family do. Next, you'd ask about if it was an older child, for example, you might ask about the feeding and weaning history. When did they come off their milk? What else has they been included in their diet? Have they had any reactions as they're switching from milk to food or as they're introducing new foods in the younger babies? What is mum having if she's breastfeeding? That might, be that might be coming through and might be playing a role. And also, because so many of these are around that baby and infancy period, how are their bowels? Are they constipated? Are they having diarrhea? How loose, how regular are they? And what's their vomiting picture? Are they a little bit paucity, which is that really effortless bring up of just milk at the end of a feed? Are they full-blown forceful reflux on a regular basis? Is it something that's happening with every feed or just if it's a big feed? Does it have any change with position or time of day? Just to get a really good picture of what's going on around their feeding if you're suspecting that the cow's milk is part of their allergic trigger. So 
after you've taken your history, you'd want to examine, and with regards to a possible calcium protein or focused allergy examination, you're looking at things like other signs of atopy, so skin, eczema, hay fever, red eyes, block stuff in your runny noses, any abdominal signs, because again, a lot of these children present with tummy pain, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, colic. So have a look at the tummy and make sure there's, there's nothing wrong there. Have a look at their growth. And that's something probably that hand on heart as a group, we sometimes miss more than we might like to admit. Have a look at their growth. How have they been doing with their centiles? Because it can be easy, definitely for parents, to confuse ongoing weight gain with appropriate growth. And that's our role is to plot them on the centiles in their red book or the RCPCH ones from the WHO to be able to see that they're growing appropriately or that their growth is slowing down and they're starting to drop across centiles and moving into that faltering growth or failure to thrive bracket. And are there any important differential diagnoses to exclude either in an exam question where you're presented with a child with features of CMPA or indeed just in a real life clinical situation where you might have a child presenting with some of the features of CMPA, what would you want to be excluding? So excluding, I think probably the only things that you could really exclude might be infection. If you felt often the child might be a bit more unwell than just a bit of vomiting or constipation. But if, for example, they are inconsolably crying, if they are irritable, if they have a really sore, tender abdomen, if they are having projectile vomiting, if they just appear unwell, that's quite possibly more than just cow's protein. And you want to be thinking about infection, especially in that under three month old cohort where we're that little bit more better safe than sorry. In the older child, you might think about something like celiac disease, but that would only really be once they've started to wean onto anything containing wheat and gluten. Other food intolerances, which just points again at the importance of taking a thorough and in-depth allergy history as to what else is in the diet and when are these symptoms and signs happening and trying to separate one meal from the other, one food from the other. And those are probably the things you can try and rule out because the others, reflux, colic, constipation, there's no test for those. I mean, yes, you can do impedance studies on refluxes, but you're not going to do that unless it's really bad, complex reflux or impacting on other medical problems. For those, you might try treating. So does the constipation go away completely with medication, regardless of what you're doing with the diet? That might make it more possible to be just idiopathic constipation. Similarly, does a reflux settle completely with medication? That's not to say that you're not still getting it from or not still getting your symptoms from casual protein allergy issues. But the easier it is to resolve the problem without changing the diet, I'd say the less likely it is to be purely the diet that is at fault. One differential that parents sometimes ask about is lactose intolerance. And it's important to take a second here to mention the key difference. Lactose intolerance is not immunological and it is not an allergy. It is a deficiency in the lactase enzyme, but it can be a partial deficiency. So 
it's not that the protein is causing a reaction. It's not that they're allergically intolerant to it. It's just that if they are deficient in the lactase enzyme, the lactose sits around and can cause symptoms like bloating and discomfort, flatulence, explosive diarrhea, for example. But it's not an allergy. So you shouldn't be seeing things anywhere near that rapid onset IgE, classic allergy into anaphylaxis direction. And you can have partial lactase deficiency where you can sort of tolerate milk, but you also sort of have some symptoms. And again, if there's uncertainty, you might consider referring through to your pediatric allergist to, to delve deeper into that and consider the need and role of investigations to confirm or rule out true allergy versus not. Moving on now to management, how do you manage it? Is it just a case of eliminating the cow's milk protein completely from the diet? And how do you do this in various different age groups that you're treating? Yep, you've got it in one. If a problem is cow's milk protein, you take away the cow's milk protein, that should solve the problem. So you exclude and substitute. So you take away the cow's milk protein, so you take away your standard formulas, or you put mum on fully dairy-free diet if she's exclusively breastfeeding. If they are formula-fed, and we see it more in the formula-fed babies, then you use what we call an extensively hydrolyzed formula. So the protein is broken down to a significant degree so that it is less likely to be recognized and less likely to trigger off reactions in the gut and in the body. It's not completely broken down. That's the next line of milks. But in the extensively hydrolyzed, you'd be having things like Aptamil pepti or Similac alimentum or Nutramagen, Carangate peptidunia, Progestamil. Most of the brands have their own version of it. You may find instances written or available of partially hydrolyzed milks. I know back when I was a junior doctor, that was something that was on our books and, and in GP formularies, at least that I have seen. And partially hydrolyzed are not hypoallergenic, so don't use them. If you think it's cow's milk protein, go straight to the extensively hydrolyzed milks at a minimum. If, however, it's a more severe case of cow's milk protein or they're not responding to the extensively hydrolyzed, you might go even further down the formula tree and use amino acid formulas, such as neocate, which most everyone would have likely heard of, neutramagen AA or alpha amino, pure amino. Neocate is probably the most common one that we see in, in hospital. And I think a lot of GP prescribing formularies will be using that as well, similarly to DGH, A&E and dietitians. And then again, if, you've, if it is cow's milk protein allergy and you've taken it away, then that should solve a problem and it should continue to give them nutrition with dietitian input to supplement and adjust things as and when including calcium vitamin D supplements, for example. And generally we do that for at least six months and then start to think about reintroducing under the auspices of dietitians along the milk ladder. Now, when they are more than six months old, you can consider soya milk as an alternative, especially if you're starting this exclusion and substitution process at that over six month age, where they start to have more impact on taste. But soya has a 10 to 20% chance of cross-reactivity with cow's milk protein allergy, so it's not a silver bullet. Don't use animal milks. They have even higher cross-reactivity, so goat milks and whatever other animal milk you can think of. Similarly, don't use rice milk. There's arsenic. Arsenic is bad. 
and don't use vegetable milks. They are nutritionally inadequate. They can be used for cooking if you need milk in a recipe to cook with, but you shouldn't be giving that as the child's main form of milk nutrition in that neonatal to infant and upwards age range. And on the note of cooking, consider that extensively hydrolyzed or amino acid formulas can and probably will affect the taste of the cooking that you're using them with, i.e. the rest of the family might get, get involved in that as well. And you mentioned earlier on thinking about the milk ladder when weaning and reintroducing cow's milk protein. What is the milk ladder? So the milk ladder, there's probably a very nice picture on the internet for you to use, but essentially it's a way to reintroduce cow's milk protein from the least allergenic presentation first up to slightly more allergenic or to slightly more allergenic, are you starting with the safest thing that you think is least likely to cause a reaction? And generally you would start with baked milk, so things like biscuits that have milk in them but have been baked, and then you would work up towards fresh milk and your local dietitian will probably be able to guide you towards whatever milk ladder is used in your trust and you'll probably see that you give a certain amount of biscuit and then a little bit more of biscuit and then a tiny amount of milk eventually and then a little bit more of milk and a bit more frequently and see how they're tolerated. Now a lot of those can be done at home but if they have had a history of severe symptoms or symptoms to minimal exposure, or if there are multiple allergies, then it may be safest to consider doing a hospital food challenge on your day case unit, generally speaking, where that can be supervised in a specifically graded and tested manner, also with the availability of your crash trolley, your adrenaline pens, your antihistamines, et cetera, if necessary. You can also consider testing the specific IgE from around the age of six to nine months onwards, because a reduction in the specific IgE from, say, your initial uh, allergist diagnosis in clinic suggests the development of tolerance. So it could be that it's still the same level now. Maybe we have to wait a little bit longer, check again in six to 12 months. And then it's now it's come down nicely. Maybe now they're more likely to be a little bit tolerant. And just another aspect of management in those with IgE mediated allergy who have the very severe reactions or possibly even anaphylactic type reactions. Is there also a role for your traditional anaphylaxis or allergy treatment such as antihistamines or steroids or even adrenaline? Yes, if they've had an anaphylactic reaction, you should be giving them an allergy pen and you should be referring them through to the allergist in clinic to be followed up, especially if you're thinking that they've got multiple food allergies, which we see more and more children having. If they have the allergy pen, you need to make sure that they are in date. You need to make sure that the parents or primary or main caregivers are trained, that they have a spare one for nursery and that the nursery teachers are trained as well. Antihistamines in their general oral form aren't going to do the trick if it's an anaphylactic reaction. So being able to advise parents as to how to recognize and how to call for help appropriately. So calling 999, taking straight to A&E, that kind of thing. And then if you're seeing it in A&E, you'll have your anaphylaxis algorithm through, through APLS often plastered up on the wall in A&E, which has a role for antihistamines, no real role for oral steroids in the immediate phase, but more about the importance of prompt 
and repeated adrenaline as necessary. But I believe that somebody else has already done or is due to do a podcast on anaphylaxis. So I would signpost people towards that. You mentioned earlier, I think, that about two thirds of young children and infants with cow's milk protein allergy will have effectively grown out of it by the time they reach primary school, I think you said. Are there any things like risk factors that would be able to predict the, tr- the children that won't just grow out of the allergy and where the allergy will persist? Yes, there are. And those would generally be immediate symptoms. Your immediate, really rapid onset, probably IgE symptoms, that's more likely to be persistent than the milder, quite delayed reactions. Those that have multiple food allergies, especially if it's associated with egg allergies, those that also have asthma or bad rhinitis, so again, the more atopic they are, the more likely their ATP is to persist. Those that, when you try and reintroduce through the milk ladder, have reactions already to baked milk, so even that little bit of biscuit is already triggering them. Uh, you can only imagine then what true fresh milk would do to them. And again, that suggests that their milk allergy and their intolerance to cow's milk protein is going to persist for longer. And finally, those that when you do the skin prick testing have the higher skin prick testing values, the ones that have really big, obvious, rapid skin reactions when you're doing the, the prick testing. Again, that's also more likely to predict persistence. And all of those would be or should be referred through to the pediatric allergist for comprehensive assessment, investigation as necessary, and follow-up in their service. Finally, moving on to our quick-fire questions. Firstly, what are the classic exam questions that pop up about this subject? So I think you could find it as a communication explanation station of how to explain about cow's milk protein that you've diagnosed, why you've diagnosed it without doing a test, as a parent might ask, and being able to describe the the rationale behind your clinical diagnosis based on the focused allergy history that you've taken and being able to paint that picture of timelines of, of what food potential triggers have caused what symptoms and when. Also possibly having to explain the the management isn't a magic medicine. It is simply take away cow's milk protein and replace it with something hypoallergenic, i.e. an extensively hydrolyzed or a fully dairy-free breastfed maternal diet. Then for the written, it hangs really on the fact that so many of these symptoms might be nonspecific and how to differentiate a cow's milk protein presenting child especially in that non-IgE where they're often a bit more milder, moderate signs, a bit more delayed signs, a bit more mixed picture, multiple signs and symptoms together compared to just reflux or purely idiopathic constipation. So looking for there is no change regardless of what diet they, they are having or it is very clearly triggered by and illustrated in a food diary or in the history that parents give you that within half an hour of having the milk, this happens. That's it leans you more towards allergy. And for written, it might be who are you going to refer and why, rather than I will refer everybody, I will refer the severe ones, the multiple food allergies, the very rapid onset ones, etc. What the ones have had anaphylaxis, but the mild non-IgE delayed reaction with a little bit of vomiting and constipation, I will manage in the community or, or keep with their GP or, or 
or DGHP nutrition. And similarly, who are you going to investigate and what investigations? And being able to lean clearly on the specific IgE as opposed to screening for any allergy leaning on the specific skin prick testing as opposed to skin prick testing for everything. You might find that as well in a written question. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend about this topic? Absolutely. Your dietitian, wherever you work, is going to know a lot more than you probably about the day-to-day management of cow's milk protein, both in terms of how and what to start, how long to how long the exclusion period is before reintroducing in your in your trust or local area, how to support parents, what supplements to use, as well as how to go about reintroducing that later on with the milk ladder and such. And similarly, your local guidelines will work alongside that. Otherwise, from a more general perspective, NICE have got some clinical knowledge summaries on cow's milk protein. And the British Society for Allergy and Clinical Immunology, or BSACI to their friends, they have got a good guideline on calcium protein as well. Finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from today? Once more, I've kind of cheated and gone for four. The first one being that it is an immune reaction. So you've got your IgE, inverted commas, more classical allergy, or your non-IgE. The second is that it is generally a clinical diagnosis but can be difficult because of often non-specific symptoms, especially in that non-IgE side. The third is it is a milk problem. Therefore, do something about the milk. Exclude, substitute, and reintroduce. And once again, because we really mustn't forget them, and they are probably your biggest ally outside of a pediatric allergist for patients with cow's milk protein, is get to know your friendly neighborhood dietitian seek their advice, seek their input, and work with them to give your patients a smoother ride through their cow's milk protein pathway. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us today and for giving us such an excellent summary about CMPA. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.